we take what we've been learning and we take it to a different level. And we begin to look now at the tasks that God puts before us um, and the universal principles that we have, but specifically looking at them as young people. Now, I might not look that young to you, but in my brain, I'm about 15 or 16. So um, that's kind of how it works. Your body gets older, but you still feel like you're just a kid. So if you remember last night, if you were here, we discussed in our last class how when Israel went through trials in the wilderness, they often failed and they repented and they returned to, to God. Um, but when the next big issue came up, they ended up at the same place and they started all over again, and they limited God's ability to save them. So we looked at this passage, how that they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel and remembered not his hand, nor the day when he delivered them from the enemy. And so we looked at the fact that the idea of limiting was to scribble or to set a mark and to basically say, well, God can't go beyond this and he can't help me. And we talked about the idea, you know, do we set limits for God? And so what we want to do today is look at how this can affect us and how we have to really start thinking of this in terms of ourselves. So we want to go to Psalm 34, if you've still got it open there in front of you, um, which I don't because I closed it when I came up here, but Psalm 34 and um, coming in at verse 4, we see here this idea that's laid out where the psalmist says, I sought Yahweh, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. So he sought and that's that word we looked at last night as well, deresh, to wear down a path to or to frequent a place. So they, they beat a path down. This wasn't an, a part-time kind of interest. They were doing this frequently, so much so that they wore a path out. And God heard them. And so the idea is to respond there. It's not just to listen, but it's actually to respond. And he delivered them, which literally means to snatch away, to rescue, or to save, or to, to pluck somebody out of all their troubles, right? He heard, and he listened, and he gave attention or interest to, he gave heed to, he granted the request, and, and brought them out of all of their troubles, which was their dire straits that they were in, the vexation, um, the things that we get ourselves into and that God then delivers us out. And that's usually the way it works. It's usually, you know, we think about, well, God puts us through trials. Actually, it's usually us that puts ourselves through trials, and God can deliver us out of the mess that we make of things. But it's usually us that do it ourselves. That's typically the way that it works. Now, as we look at Psalm 34, there are some pretty strong statements that are made here. If we look at verse 7, the angel of Yahweh encampeth around them that fear him, and delivereth them. And this idea of encamping roundabout is on all sides. So he makes a circuit around. He completely surrounds the, the believer and he delivers them. He draws them out. He arms for war. He rescues. He equips. He makes strong. He braces up or invigorates. There is nothing that our God cannot do. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we're not going to face trials, because quite often we put ourselves into those trials, but God can equip us to get us out of those. Now, I want to go to one of my favorite uh, stories in the Bible, and that's the story of Elisha and the young man outside Dotham. So let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. So here we have Elisha, and the king is pursuing them, the king of Syria, and he's pursuing them, and um, he's trying to figure out, you know, how we can, we can take care of them. If you remember the story um, where basically uh, every time he came against the king of Israel, Elisha told the king of Israel what he was up to, and the king of Israel was able to respond, and he just couldn't pin him down. And somebody told the king of Syria that it's Elisha that's doing this. And so um, in 2 Kings chapter 6 and at verse 15, we have here this seeing the unseen, right? So when the servant, the man of God, was risen early and gone forth, so they'd been sleeping through the night, he looks out and behold, a host compassed the city, both with chariots, horses and chariots. And the servant said, alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now, it's an interesting passage here because you've got to think about this from Elijah's, Elisha's perspective. It's not like he had some, you know, angelic x-ray vision glasses and he was able to see all the angels around them. He couldn't see any of them. He just knew they were there. Based on the fact of the psalm we just read, that the angel of Yahweh encamps around them that fear him. He couldn't see them, no more than the young lad could. But he says, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And so he goes on as the record continues. Elisha prayed and said, Yahweh, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And Yahweh opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And so when you think about that, you know, it's, it's a fascinating little passage, and one of my favorite Bible stories is you just think of, you know, there they are, the, the, the city, Dotham, which sits on top of a tell, right? So in, in the Middle East, they have these tells, the little mounds, and they would build a city on the top so that they could look down on their enemies. But their enemies have come, and they've literally surrounded the entire top of the city, and basically, they are there with their chariots and horses. And Elisha prays to open the young man's eyes. He doesn't pray to open his eyes. He opens the young man's eyes, he says. And when he sees the whole mountain, so the whole mound now is full of horses and chariots of fire swirling round about Elisha. And so he saw them through the eye of faith. And then God opens their eyes. And they both then see them. And Elisha actually speaks with the angels. And it's just a fascinating thing. Now, that's the kind of faith that we need to develop. We don't have x-ray, you know, angelic vision goggles, so to speak. But we need to have that faith to believe that the angels are there present with us. And so if we come back to Psalm 34, um, and you might want to just toss a marker in there in Psalm 34, we have here then the statement for which we've named uh, or titled this class from, where he's told there uh, in Psalm 34 and at verse 7, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So that's God's challenge to you 
and it's his challenge to me, is to get out of our armchair as a spectator, reading our Bible stories and looking at this, and he says, I want you to actually taste this. I want you to actually experience this. And the idea there of taste, as we have it there, is to eat, to perceive by tasting. You have to take a bite in order to do that. And so this is God's challenge to us, to take a bite and to see, to inspect, to look at, to consider, to observe, to, to, take a, uh, to gaze upon. So you have to take a bite, and you also have to take a look, and then you have to trust, as the word goes on. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. And the word literally means to seek refuge, to flee for protection, to put our confidence or our hope in him. Now, as young people, quite often, you know, it's all theory, right? We go through Sunday school, and we read these stories, and we read the passages, and it's all something that happened either to these people all these years and years ago, and we kind of look at it as a very theoretical, historical kind of thing. But this passage here is very much about now. Taste and see that Yahweh is good. Take a bite. Blessed is he that puts his trust in him. Now, when I was about 16 years old, um, I had an experience that I, I'm just going to share with you, just a little story. Um, I lived in northern British Columbia. It's about 10 hours from the next meeting, so it's, it's way up in the north. And in our CYC, um, there was 10 boys and one girl. That was my sister. So the idea of dating anybody was kind of pretty limited. Um, so obviously, prospects were going to be somewhere else, and if you wanted to meet somebody, you had to travel. So I went to a Bible school down in Victoria on Vancouver Island, which is about a 14 or so, 15-hour drive from where we lived, because we actually had to take a ferry and cross and go to this Bible school. And while I was there, there was this young brother who literally got baptized at the Bible school, and he invited me to come stay with him and to work with him, and then we could go and, you know, different CYC things or whatever, and I thought, brilliant. Now, he was quite a bit older than me. He was probably 27. I was like 16. So I thought, you know, 27 years old, this guy knew everything. Of course, um, he was a bachelor, um, which means he was completely inept when it came to anything domestic whatsoever. Um, and um, I had come from a very poor family, and so before I said to my dad, hey, look, I'm going to go and I'm going to stay with this brother and I'm going to spend the summer there, and he said, listen, kid, I've spent everything we have to get to Bible school. I have no money to send you. We have enough to get a ferry ticket and gasoline to get home, and that's it. So I cannot bail you out. You have to make sure that this is what you want to do. You're going to have to work at least to get the money to get the ferry and then the bus home, which would have been probably at the time over $100, $200. I mean, that's in, you know, 19, whatever it was, 85 kind of dollars. So it's, it's a long time ago. Um, so I worked for him for like two or three days, and he got a phone call, and he had to go work. Um, up the island. Ten, ten or so uh, days he was going to be gone. So there's me now, 16 years old, not two quarters in my pocket, so to speak, um, and I'm by myself. And he had to take off pretty quickly and he left. Um, and I opened the cupboard and there's no food. And I opened the fridge and there's just sour milk. And so I'm like, at 16, I mean, food is pretty important, right? So. I was like, what am I going to eat? And I found a can 
of chicken noodle soup, but the stove was broken. So I ate cold chicken noodle soup, and it took me years to ever touch chicken noodle soup. I went to the 24-hour store just to see if there was anything I could get, and it was 9 o'clock, and it was closed. So I'm like, what on earth am I going to do? Now, we lived on the outskirts of Victoria, no bus service, couldn't take a bus to anybody. Um, so I was basically stuck out there, no money. Um, I couldn't get a bus, didn't have the money to get a ferry ride over to uh, the mainland, couldn't call my dad. He'd already told me, there's no way, kid, I can't bail you out. And so I was absolutely distraught. What could I possibly do? And I walked outside onto his balcony, and I looked up, and I saw the stars. And immediately, I thought, hmm, you know, promises to Abraham, God is in control. And I remembered Proverbs 3. Let's just turn there. I don't have a slide on it, but just turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Because this was a passage that I had to learn in Sunday school, right? So we had to learn these things. Verse 5, trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear Yahweh and depart from evil. Well, I, in my you know, infinite 16-year-old wisdom, had thought, well, what could be better than being down here by this ecclesia, young people that I could go visit and whatever else? I didn't pray a lick about it. Why would I? You know, this seemed like a pretty good idea. And then I sat there and I thought, you know, this is a very important lesson. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct thy paths. So I prayed to God that night, confessed my foolishness for not putting the issue before him, and asking him to deliver me out of the impossible situation I'd put myself in. And I walked inside, and the phone rang. Well, I'm the only one in the house. So I answered it, and it was a brother who had been at Bible school and knew that I was staying with this brother on the island. And he said, listen, he says, I, I, I've got to ask a favor, Jonathan. He says, I'm in a terrible strait. He says, I've got this big contract, and my main employee fell out of a tree, broke his leg, and I'm stuck. I need somebody to help me. So he said, I will come and get you. I will pick you up. I will, you know, go, drive across, take the ferry, come get you, pick you up, bring you back, and you can work for me for the summer. Well, there happened to be lots of young people in, in Vancouver as well. Um, but nonetheless, like, so he's like, Jonathan, are you there? And the phone just was dead silent because all the hair on the back of my head stood up. Because I realized that for me was the first time that I could think of where a prayer was just immediately answered. Because, young people, this is not a dead letter. Our God is not the God of the Old Testament only that does not exist. He exists in our lives. And, you know, I, I often wonder, did the angel push that guy off the tree, you know, like, and, and cause this issue to kind of save me out of the circumstance? Um, but, see, the thing is, in, in Jeremiah 7, verse 23, we read, It's not in man that walketh to direct his steps. And that's what we have to learn. And God challenges us. Taste and see. And so what we have to do is open our lives to him. So if you're back in Psalm 34, um, let's read together verse 9. Oh, fear Yahweh, ye his saints, for there's no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack, and they suffer hunger, but they that seek Yahweh shall not want any good thing. They're not going to lack 
They're not going to be in poverty. They're not going to need any good thing. God will be with them. It doesn't mean that they're not going to have trials and tribulations, but the angel of Yahweh will encamp around you and will also deliver you if you put your trust in him. And so when we read in the verse 11, come ye children, hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that shall see good? Keep thy tongue from evil, thy lips from speaking guile, depart from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. And so this is the thing we need to hearken, to listen with attention and obedience to be taught, to be trained and exercised, and to pursue, which literally means to run after, to follow closely, to chase something. And that's got to be how we live our lives. And it's true for the young people as much as it is for their parents. Because you go through life and you can drift in and out. Sometimes you're more focused. Sometimes work and events and stuff like that can pull your heart and your mind away. And sometimes it's just practicalities of life. And that's where Bible schools are great. Hitting that reset button and get back to what we're supposed to be about. You know, that's one of the critical things that we have to do. Actively pursue while not participating evil. You know, the chase is on. And it can't be a half-hearted shuffle. That's not what the word means here. It means to run after, to chase after, to attend to something closely, not just to kind of dawdle along in that direction. We have to decide. There's a word that's used in the New Testament. I'm not sure if it's in the, in the, the talk today, but it's circumspectly. We're told to walk circumspectly. Now, that word literally means with purpose. So you can think of all the Christians and all the, you know, the David, what's his name, Stephen Covey, and, and all these guys, they all have, you know, great um, motivational stuff, and they talk about purpose-driven lives. Well, the, nothing could be more true than us, and we have to decide at some point in time, this is the main purpose in my life, and that is a choice that every single one of us has to make every single day because you can't just make it one day do a few things and then wander off and then come back you have to constantly be doing this and so when we read in psalm 34 verse 11 the eyes are yahweh upon the righteous and his ears are open to their cry but the contrast is there given the face of yahweh is against them that do evil to cut off their remembrance of them from the earth and we used to often think about this when i attended public school you know, you'd have those kids in school that were just so full of life and all the activities that they got into and all these things. And, and there's parts of you as a youngster that would be like, ooh, I'd like to do this or go watch that show or do whatever and this and that and the other. But you then realize, but what we have is worth so much more than what they have. And so, as he goes on here, the righteous cry, and Yahweh heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. Yahweh is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. And sometimes we have to get to that point where we are shattered. And that's what the word literally means, to be of a broken heart. And a contrite spirit, a crushed spirit. And sometimes circumstances in life will do that to us. We may go through situations that are crushing and are shattering. And our response has to be 
to cry unto Yahweh our God, and he will hear, and he will deliver us out of our troubles, and he will be near unto every one of us. As he goes on here, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivereth him out of them all, and keepeth all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. Yahweh redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Many are the afflictions. Many. Not once in a while there'll be things that'll happen to you, but you will have many strong and great. The word is rab. In the Hebrew, we have actually a, a grocery store by us called Rabba Foods, which means lots of food, right? So this is the idea. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But God can deliver us out of them all. And the afflictions there are the miseries, the pain, the unhappiness. We will face trials. That's part of the training process. But we are not to despair. God can indeed deliver us, to snatch us away, to rescue us, recover us, pluck us out, tear us away, out of them all. And that's the Hebrew word kol, which means the entire amount, absolutely everything, totality. And again, it's conditional on one thing, faith. It's those who trust in him, who seek refuge or flee for protection or confide in. And, you know, when you look at the lives of all the people in the Bible, as you sit here and look at your life, you know, and, and all the things that you think that you may or may not do, and I can guarantee you, you probably won't do half of them. You'll probably train for something that you'll never do. Um, you know, you'll go to school or uni or whatever. I'm going to do this. And then you get out of uni or whatever it is, and you do something totally different. Uh, I actually have three of my um, very closest friends. They're all electronics engineering technologists, right? So they went to school to figure out how to do electronics engineering. One works for a bank and runs software groups that write software for this bank. One works for a company that makes tools, and he basically is a project manager for them. And the other one is an IT manager for Novaco, which makes um, the stuff that you freeze when you go to the dentist with. Absolutely nothing to do what they were trained for. And I just make that point because we sometimes think that this is the route we're going to go, and God says, no, it's not. I will put you in the place where you should be. So as we look forward in our life to what's coming, we need to remember that God's servants were always provided for. It wasn't always what they wanted, but it was what they needed. Now let's just go to Genesis chapter 28, because this is the story of Jacob, and we're just going to jump into the story of Jacob as we're thinking about our theme, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the rest of it will be added unto you. You'll, you'll be looked after. When Dr Jacob dreamed, and he went through his dream, uh, we read here in, in uh, Genesis 28, verse 13, Behold, Yahweh stood above it. This is the, the ladder that went up to heaven. And he says, I am Yahweh, God of Abraham, thy father, the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest to thee will I give it into thy seed, and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. In thee and in thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. 
And God tells him here, Behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and bring thee again into this land, and I will not leave thee until I have done all that I have spoken to thee of. Well, brothers and sisters and young people, God makes that same promise to us. The Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the earth, the end of the world, the end of the age. Is he not with us? If we choose to be his servants, he says, I will keep thee, which literally means to guard, to keep watch, to protect, or to take care of. And so when you think about that, and you think now of Jacob's pledge, God having said this to him, he understood what God meant by I am with thee and will keep thee in all places where thou goest. Now, just consider this in light of our subject. Jacob vowed a vow and said, if God will be with me and keep me in the way that I go, to do what? To give me bread to eat, to raiment to put on. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? So that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall Yahweh be my God, and this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that thou hast given me, shall give me, I will surely give a tenth unto thee. So we see here that Jacob got it. It's Matthew chapter 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he'll look after it. He'll give you bread to eat and raiment to put on. He's going to bring you back again to this place. And so the same is true for us, that our God has promised us that if we're baptized, we will be partakers in the promise. And he'll bring us back to that place as well. Back to Israel where the promises are going to be. And we will come again in peace. And so that's what we've got to think about. Now let's turn forward to First of Kings chapter 17. Again, these are Sunday school stories. They're things that we are quite familiar with. We have here Elisha, or Elijah this time, the Tishbite. And um, in First of Kings 17 verse 1... We find there the word of Yahweh came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself uh, by the brook Kerith, uh, that is before Jordan. And thou shalt, it shall be that when thou shalt drink of the brook, I have commanded thee the raiments to feed thee there. So there we have it. We read through it. You know, off you go. What is he talking about here? What you shall drink and what you shall eat. And you're going to be looked after with those things, if you seek me first. So here's Elijah. He is told to go hide, and God would feed him and clothe him. It wasn't a gourmet meal. It wasn't exactly kosher, being fed by the ravens, so to speak. But it was exactly what he needed to get him through. It was sustenance. God provided for his necessities. And, you know, as we go on, the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. So they were an abomination, we read in Leviticus 11, verses 13 to 15. They were an unclean animal, and yet they brought him the food. And so Elijah was looked after. And then, of course, as the story goes on, the brook dries up after a while. In in verses um, 7 and 9, it came to pass after a while, the brook dried up because there had been no rain. And God says, all right, I want you to go to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, Jezebel's hometown, nothing to look there, and um, I've commanded a widow there to sustain thee. 
And so there he goes, after having learned the lesson of receiving from the unclean ravens, he's now challenged to receive from an unclean Gentile. And as a Jew, this was a challenge to him, just like uh, um, Peter would experience with Cornelius later on. And so when you look at this, um, we read through the record here as it keeps going. He arose and goes to Zarephath, and he comes to the gate of the city. And there's a widow woman gathering sticks, and he calls to her, and he says, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she is going to fetch it, he called and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And of course, she's told, um, she said, As Yahweh liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little cruise of oil, a little oil in a cruise, and behold, I'm gathering enough sticks that I might go and dress it for me and my son. We're going to eat and we're going to die. That's our last meal. Now, how practical is that when she is challenged to put God first? When she is told by Elisha that she is basically to go and make the cake for him first. She is challenged by that. And of course, we know the end of the story. And as armchair warriors, you could say, well, what about us? Maybe as young parents, if that was our last meal for our child, could we then give it to another brother in the meeting? From not even your meeting, from somewhere far away, would we be actually willing to do that? She didn't know the end of the story, but we do. And there are times in our lives and we're asked to put God first seemingly to our own detriment. Now that's gonna to happen to you as you go to uni, as you go out to college, as you go to work, where you're gonna run into circumstances that are gonna test you and try you and you've gotta to have to decide, do I put God first to my detriment? It might mean the end of this job. As a young man, I worked in advertising and I worked for a company um, as a graphic designer and, and, and a layout artist, and we'd have to make out the ads. And so I would go with the client, and the salesperson would come along, and they would take them to a restaurant, and we'd have to basically sit down, and I would sketch out what they wanted over the meal, and then basically off we'd go. So me being as naive as they come, walk off to this restaurant, only to find out that it's actually a strip bar. And I'm like standing there, and this is my job. And here's the client, and here's the salesperson. And I said to the salesperson, I, I, I can't go in there. And he's like, what do you mean you can't go in there? I said, I'm not going in there. He says, look, you're 19, you're old enough, you can go in there. I said, I am not going in there. I said, you can fire me right now. I'm not going in there. I said, you know me, you know my beliefs, you know that I'm a Christian boy kind of thing. I am not gonna set foot in that place. And the client turned around, and I won't tell you what he said, because I can't repeat it, but he took a strip off that salesperson for putting me in that position. And that was the end of it. We went somewhere else. But I could have lost my job at that point in time. And those are the challenges that will come up to you. They'll come up to you, so we would have sometimes meals and whatever else, and the boys would all go out, and you would have a sales convention, and of course I'm cut tied to them, and they would be the beers flowing and all the alcohol and whatever else amongst all these Philistines, and I decided to take a bit of a recabite stand when it came to work. I will not drink a drop of alcohol with any of these people, because I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to get me drunk, because they think this is the funniest thing. 
So you get challenged, and this is right, I mean, this was my apprenticeship. I didn't actually go to school. I went as an apprentice. Um, right in the thick of that, and so I refused to drink. And so when Sister Charlene and I got married, they had a stag party for me. And they took a life-size photo of me, because we had a big PMT machine that you could blow it up, and they stuck it in the corner of the bar, and they put a cup in its hand, and every time they all bought the round of drinks, because I wasn't going to be there, they all put money in the, in the cup, and we ended up getting our microwave oven for when we got married. Because they just knew this is not what we were going to do. And so as you go out into life, you're going to be challenged with things that will test your principles. And you have to decide, you have to be circumspect and make a decision now that I'm not going to participate in those things. Um, for want of running out of time, and I probably will, um, we'll skip this next one. I, I'm going to just explain one other thing. And that is prayer. When you go for a, a meal... Offer thanks for your food. And the reason I say that is because that's how my dad came into the truth. He went to a bar, which is a pub in Britain, because they don't have restaurants. You know, they didn't back then anyway. And anybody that was living uh, in an apartment bachelor, if you wanted a proper meal, not fish and chips, that you could have that for a month or so, then you'd be dead. Right? So, like, you, you would go to a pub, and they would have a proper cooked meal, and there was this young man there who was giving thanks for his food. And all the guys in the pub are all giving him a hard time. And, you know, my dad, being the one that was the orphan, immediately jumps over to defend the young man. Not, not a lick of religion in him. He probably had four pints by then. Um, but defends this young man and basically says, if he wants to pray for his meal, if anybody has anything to say about it, meet me outside and I'll deal with you. Right? So he defended this young man. Well, the young man said to him, well, look, we actually have a Bible exhibition going on. Um, why don't you come with me? And my dad was like, nah. Like I, I think he actually did have four pints by that point in time. So he was like, I'm in no shape to go to a Bible exhibition. Well, the guy says, well, it's on all week. So the next night, he walks by the pub, and he takes a look in, and he sees the young man in there eating his dinner. Right, now I'm safe because he's in there. He goes on to where the Bible exhibition was, and he never stopped going. And it was all because a youngster, 19 or 20 years old, gave thanks for his food. A quiet witness. He gave thanks for it. He was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And if it wasn't for that young man, my entire family wouldn't be in the truth. So these are the challenges that will come upon us as we go through life. And we have to decide what we're going to do. We have to decide, young people, to serve our God in a way that is going to be um, honorable to him and make a conscious decision on what we're going to do. And we cannot wait to engage, you know, in the work of the truth. And, and quite often this happens, young people, you know, you're going to go to uni, you're going to, you know, do an apprenticeship as I did or whatever. You've got to get all of that sorted first. Um, and sometimes that's our mindset. Um, I want you to listen to what the Lord says to the disciples. You know, should they get all prepared 
before they go out and do something. So this is what he says in Matthew 10, verse 5. Jesus commanded and sent forth, or the, the 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, into the city of the Samaritans, enter not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out the devils, freely have you received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor purse or, or brass in your purses nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. Now take that and apply that to your life. You don't need to have a job and a house and a car and a career and all that before you engage in the work of the truth. Don't worry about gold, silver, brass, purse, scrip for your journey, two coats and all that kind of stuff. Get on with the work. You can begin the work of serving your God now. And you can be that 19-year-old who gave thanks for his meal and invited somebody along to the meeting. And you know the interesting thing is that young man left the truth and kind of lost his way for quite some time. And then um, I was going to actually England with my wife on a honeymoon and as we were walking through, um, I was with actually Brother Mike Ashton, and uh, this young man, um, I was introduced to, well, he wasn't young anymore, but I was introduced to him um, as this is so-and-so. And he's, you know, uh, just come back into the meeting and blah, blah, blah. And then we walked away, and I, I, you know, I'd shaken his hand, and we walked away, and I'm like, the Rolodex is going in the head. This is the phone app that tells you, you know, names and numbers, right? And I'm trying to think, like, I know this name from somewhere. And I went back to him, I said, I want to thank you. He says, for what? I said, for saving my life. He says, what are you talking about? I said, you are the young man that my dad was invited to the lecture by back in whatever it would have been, 1967 or something like that. You gave a prayer and you invited him and I'm his son. I said, I owe you my life. And it was interesting to meet somebody like that. And that's the thing, brothers and sisters, we can be the very resource that God will deploy if we will be circumspect and decide. I look at it every job I start, I think about who is it that in this place I'm supposed to talk to. And you can drop breadcrumbs, you can talk about stuff with people, you can get that conversation going and invite them into the truth. We have a, a software that I, I work for, and you have to set a date on the software. And it's like, you know, expiry of your, I think it's your selling list. So your, your pricing list will expire, and most of our clients will expire it at the end of the year. So January 1st, they can't get any quotes out, and the whole system doesn't work. So I, I tell them, all right, what you need to do is set the date for 2099 when you'll all be dead and I'll still be alive. Right? And just throw it out there and see if anybody bites. Well, one of the guys I work with, after about four of these meetings, he says, everybody else is gone. And he says, I want to ask you about this. He says, you've made that call. First time, I thought you were just being silly. He says, but you've made it four times. What do you mean by that? And I said, well, I believe in the return of Jesus Christ to the earth, and he's going to set up his kingdom. Should I not be killed or die of a disease in the meantime? And if I am, I'll be raised. In 2099, I firmly believe that I will be alive and the kingdom of God will be on, and I will be there. And he's since read Christendom Astray, and Christadelphians, what they believe in, preached, has slew through the Christadelphian video. He's not baptized yet. Conversation's still going on. But young people, wherever you are, you are 
uh, an ambassador for Christ. Now, not quite the way it's put there in, in, in the New Testament. We don't quite fall under that. That was the apostles. But we carry or can carry the name of Christ, and we can be people that God uses. So when we think about this, and we think about how we can help in the truth, um, it's interesting that Paul had his ravens as well. We think of um, the apostle in, in Romans chapter 16. He says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the ecclesia that's in Sencrea, that ye receive her in the Lord as become a saint, and that you assist her in whatsoever business she has need of, for she hath been my succorer, uh, the succorer of many and of myself also. She was his raven. And we might not always be the one front and center, but it might be that you've got a very enthusiastic young brother or sister beside you. You're not to their caliber of excitement, but you can be the one to jump in behind them. And like Jonathan's armor bearer, you go and I'll go with you. And we can support one another in the work of the truth. We might not feel that we're the one that can be the, the front and center, but we can rally behind those who are. And don't despise when we get an enthusiastic young person who's all gung-ho, as older brothers and sisters sometimes will turn around and say, well, that'll wear off, you know. Well, I hope it never does, and it doesn't need to. And remember, Bob Lloyd used to say, you know, after Bible school, don't let the glow go, right? When you get baptized and you're enthusiastic, keep that enthusiasm, never let it go all the way through your entire life and be the succorer of as many as you can. Mary, we read in Romans 16, verse 6, bestowed much labor on us. We don't know which Mary this was. You've got 1 Corinthians 16, 15, the house of Stephanus have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. And so what we need to be is the support. If we can't be the one out in front, support the effort. We do Bible lectures or we do seminars. Be there, help set up, talk to people, you know, do whatever you can to help this happen. Involve yourself in the work and service of the truth. See, we need to have a completely different outlook, as we've been looking at in Matthew chapter 6, if we just turn back there, where we're told, you know, don't take thought. So this is the last of that chapter. We didn't actually read it yesterday. We left it off so that we could come to it today. But where he says there in Matthew 6, take no thought, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Your heavenly Father knows you have need of all these things. Therefore, take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. See, the thing is, is the Gentiles were seeking for this, which means to inquire, to search for, to seek diligently, to wish for, to crave, to demand, or to clamor for. That's what they were seeking, to search with zeal. And that's what the world does when it comes to wealth. And we're told not to do that. Don't make your life all about stuff. And young people, as you look forward, don't get caught in that trap. Come over to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. We read here, he said unto them in verse 13, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. See, it's, it's the world says that to us all the time. Covetousness, the greedy desire to have 
more and more and more. And Colossians tells us that covetousness is the same thing as idolatry. It's worshipping mammon, the world, and putting all our effort and energy and time into getting stuff, into getting the things of this world. And, you know, that is the philosophy of the world. This was a bumper sticker. He who dies with the most toys wins, you know. And, and that's sort of the way they look at it. You know, if you get all this stuff and hoard it together, it's the typical Western mindset. And if you get the most stuff, then when you die, you win. The other bumper reads, bumper sticker reads, he who dies with the most toys still dies. And you don't see very many hearses pulling U-Hauls behind them with all the stuff for you to take it with you. It all goes somewhere else. And so when we think about this, we think of the words of Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 4. I saw all the toil and skill in the work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. That's the motive of the world. All toil and skill in work, why do people do it? Because they're envious of what the neighbor has. They want to keep up with the next door neighbor. He's got a fancier car, they want a fancier car. Kid at school's got the latest iPhone, I want the latest iPhone. It's just, it doesn't matter what level of life you're at, it's all the same stuff. Envy and jealousy are the things that businesses thrive on. A zealous jealousy, arduent jealousy, a jealous disposition. And it's actually used of a husband for his wife. And skill at work is the idea of being profitable and skillful, the business pursuits, um, the achievements, profitable businesses. They're all built around this type of thing. And we need to check our motives. Now come, if you would, if you're in Luke chapter 12, down to verse 16. Because here we read of the bigger and better barns. He spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Now notice something here. He's already rich. Now, sometimes we don't pick that up. He's a rich man already. But the ground brings forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room to bestow my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods, and will say to my soul, Solder has much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He was wealthy and abounding in material resources before even this bumper crop. And he's worried about where he's going to bestow, assemble together, or collect in storehouses all this stuff so that he can take ease and basically relax, give himself to rest. And young people, this is the issue of the day. And God, of course, says to this man, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall all those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, my boss did exactly this thing. He went out and he built bigger and better barns. And I thought this was interesting. This was an ad, um, building better barns. Um, and it was out there, and I thought, wow, you know, this person obviously hasn't read that. Maybe they have. But, I mean, he had literally 
built a bigger barn because he had a Harley Davidson, a fishing boat, he also had a yacht at the lake, two snowmobiles, um, two ATVs, a 1970s Cadillac convertible, even with the big cow horns on the front, right? And he had a Cadillac for himself to drive every day, a Lexus for his wife to drive, a custom-built Dodge Charger sports car just for fun, $150,000, a flat trailer, a closed trailer, Capoda tractor to mow his fields, a snowblower, an F-150 dually truck to pull the trailers, and then an F-150 F-250 to plow his driveway. And his wife told me, she says, you know, Ron spends all his time looking after the blessings God has given us, which literally included tearing down the existing barn, building another one, and putting all this stuff in there, complete with a man cave to hold it all. And then he died. And the whole thing was a disaster as his children then fought over all the stuff, and it ruined the family. Now, that might not be us, but stuff is a big issue. We have the old barn self-storage. You know what's an interesting fact? That um, society struggles with storing stuff. So it might be vehicles, boats, RVs, whatever it might be. Do you know that there were no self-storage units before 1969? There wasn't one on the planet. The first one was built in 1969 in the USA. 1972 was when they came to Australia, 1979 for the UK. And today there's 149 million square meters of storage in the USA alone. That's the equivalent of 20,806 soccer fields to put stuff that people can't fit in their homes because they have too much of it. That's more square kilometers than Barcelona, Lisbon, San Francisco, or Zurich is just to hold the stuff, 7.5 billion Australian dollars worldwide. Now just remember, brothers and sisters, that parable, right? That's the numbers that are involved in this. And it might not be for us, just the accumulation of stuff, but that's an endemic problem throughout the world. It might be, you know, the whole thing of your retirement, taking your ease, you know, and all this kind of stuff, easy living year round and all this sort of thing. You see, brothers and sisters, what we've got to remember is that's not our place to take our ease. There is no retirement from the truth. How old was Daniel when he was in the lion's den? Anybody remember? 90, 87 years old. How old was Caleb when he finally got to fight his Goliath giant? 80-something years old. So if you think you retire in the truth, guess again. That's when you fight lions and giants. Right? That's when that side of it begins. And so Moses was 80 years old when he began to bring Israel out of Egypt. Paul was in his mid-60s when he wrote a lot of the letters that we have. So these are the things, and, and it's what we read of in Hebrews 4. Look, there remains a rest for the people of God, but it's not now. He that has entered into his rest has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So even when we're older, we have a role to play. One of those roles is just showing up and supporting whatever's going on in the ecclesia and being there. And so there is a rest, and we have to labor to exert ourselves to be zealous and active to enter into that rest. Because, brothers and sisters, as we looked at yesterday, we are not our own. We are bond slaves. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. And young people, 
When we make our commitment to God, we have to understand what we're getting into. And that's why we don't baptize babies. You make a decision. Do you want to be a part of this? That's why we actually do interviews. That's why we actually do preparing for baptism classes. You need to understand the terms of the covenant that God is laying out for you and the amazing rewards. But it comes at a cost, and the cost is this life now. And so when we think of John chapter 9, the Lord himself, he says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. The night comes that no man can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So every single one of us has to be prepared to work in the world and to be involved in the things of the truth. And all of our plans matter not compared to what we think we're going to do. We have James chapter 4 here. Go to now, you that say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this city or that one, continue there a year, buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you don't know what shall be on the morrow. We have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. So we don't make our plans and say, I'm going to go to uni, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do all these kinds of things. And God might say, no, you're not. You're going to go do this. Or you're going to go do that. And, you know, what is your life? It's even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanishes away. What you ought to say is, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings, and, your, and such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. We don't know how long we've got. We don't know what the future holds for us. We can't make these long-term plans. We have to decide today, if you will hear his voice, then we need to, to decide what we're going to do. The word actually for buy and sell is kind of like emporium. It's kind of a, a Greek word that's kind of along that lines, and the idea is to travel for business, to traffic, or to trade. And so when we look at that and we consider what our God has for us, um, we need to recognize that we don't have the time that we think we have. But what we do need to do is set some goals. Now, I just want to throw in one more. So um, I left Victoria, went to Vancouver, and I started cutting lawns. And I was awful at it. So I would go there cutting lawns, and I'd watch Brother Andy, you know, straight lines all the way through. I was like all over the place. And I'd look back at my lines and think, how on earth does he do this? So I went to Brother Andy, I says, Uncle Andy, I says, how are you doing this? Like, my lines are all over the place. He says, yeah, that's a right mess. He says, I would have thought you would have known Bowen. And I says, well, what do you mean? He says, you're a Bible student. No man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. He says, you're certainly not. He says, look at the lines. He says, it's because you're like, oh, there's a dog mess there, and I've got to turn around this pothole here. And he says, all you're doing is looking at all the things down below. He says, what you need to do is pick a point on the other side of the field, a flower, you know, a post or whatever it might be, and don't take your eyes off it. Now go mow. Dead straight line every time. And, you know, it's such a simple lesson. But, young people, that's what we've got to do. Decide in your life, this is where I want to be. Be circumspect. Decide. Don't just let life happen to you. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
and all these things will be added unto you. And the idea is to seek, to crave, to have something that we're absolutely desiring for. First, first in rank, influence, in place of, uh, in our life. The prototon is the Greek word there. The kingdom or the authority of the rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we've got to do. Because all the things of this life are going to be dissolved. They're going to go away as we looked at yesterday. What we need to do is set our hearts and our minds on the kingdom of God. The problem with the world around us is it has no clue, has no vision, right? I mean, this is basically it for them. Sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp, eating grapes. You know, it's really, really boring. You know, wish I'd brought a book. That's their vision. You know, maybe they play golf up in heaven or whatever their idea is. I'm with Mark Twain on that way. Golf is a good way to ruin a walk, right? So you look at this. That's all they think about. You've got to have a vision of the kingdom and set your eyes on that mark and don't turn from it. I mean, that was Peter. Peter turned around and said to the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, people say in the, in the world today, what's your why? You know, why are you doing this? And, you know, as Christadelphians, we need to ask the same question. Peter said to the Lord, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have there for? What's in it for us? That's a very valid question. And the Lord Jesus Christ turns around and says, you know, I've got a job offer for you. You which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you also shall sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And that is what we are promised, to be kings and priests. I mean, that's Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. He hath made us kings and priests unto our God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And so we have it in chapter 5 as well. He has made us to our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth with him. That's got to be our ambition. One last story, because it's Sunday school, I'm doing stories, but one last story. My boss turned around to me one day and said, Jonathan, it's time to go vote. I'll watch over the computer room. You need to get off and vote. And I said, Ron, you know I don't vote. He says, yeah, he says, I hate you Christadelphians. He says, you have no ambition whatsoever. You won't vote, you won't join in politics, and if there's a war, you wouldn't even join in that. I said, let me just put it into perspective for you, Ron. Like, what is your company? 130 people, I run that for you, right? Whoop-de-doo. I said, if I was mayor of Brantford, 120,000 people, big deal. If I was premier of Ontario, 13 million people, it's not enough, Ron. If it was, you know, all of Canada that I was prime minister of, 37 million or whatever the number is, I said, that's still not enough. I said, Ron, my ambition, my plan is to rule the world and to take it by force. Not by myself, but with all the other saints under the power and the, the auspices of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my ambition. And he told me, get out of my office. <laughs> but that's gotta be what it's about for us, but it requires qualifications. The God of Israel said unto me, the rock, spake, uh, rock of Israel spake to me, he that rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And so we'll end with this verse in Zechariah, where we're told, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, if you will keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shall keep my courts, and I will give you places to walk 
amongst those that stand by. Set your mind, brothers and sisters and young people, on that point in the future. Don't take your eyes off it. No matter what happens, no matter what obstacles you hit along the way, keep your eyes fixed firmly upon it. And the Lord will bring you to the kingdom and he will make good on his promise and we will be kings and priests and live and reign with him for a thousand years. And the perks are amazing, immortal life. You won't find any company that can offer you that kind of a benefit package, I guarantee you.